It's 80 degrees. The baptismal is 80 degrees. So for people getting baptized, it's warm. Now, I, I, that's a, many of you did not have that luxury. You're baptized in, it should be freezing cold. Give, give you a little, little jolt. Okay, so uh, we are four weeks into the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is deep, complex, if you're honest with yourself and not trying to pretend to be super Christian. At times, it is very difficult to follow, right? It's hard to figure out what, what exactly is going on. Today, we start the second part of a trilogy. It's called Rise of the Day Star. We just finished the first part up. was called Heirs of Treason. Um, and we are picking up when Isaiah is about to like let loose with his prophet of doom self. Like, if you were here for the first few, first four weeks of this, you know it's like judgment, judgment, you're going to die, you're going to die. And it's, it's going to continue. The, the, the prophet of doom is just going to come out all the more. But before we do that, I want to set Isaiah chapter 14, where we'll be at today, I want to set it up succinctly with kind of where we're at and where we've been. So Isaiah is prophesying Roughly 749 BC, it's the, the year King Uzziah died, that's where he begins his ministry. And the really bad news is, is he's prophesying to Israel and he tells Israel, you guys are in sin and God is co- going to take you out. Now the reason why Israel being in sin is worse than just any other nation being in sin is because Israel is supposed to be the light of the world. They are the people that God said will ultimately bring about a human being who's going to defeat the serpent. The serpent is introduced in Genesis chapter three. In the garden, the serpent figure comes in and basically tells the first human beings, you too can be like God. Very important what he says, you too can be like God. And so God makes a, makes a promise after Adam and Eve believe the serpent and sin. He basically says there's going to be two types of people. There are going to be people who do the will of God. They're going to be the seed or the offspring of the woman, the woman. And then there's going to be this group of people from the line or the offspring or the seed of the serpent. And those are people who are against the will of God. And that plays out in the Cain and Abel story right after. But here is, here is the main point. God selects Israel ethnic Israel, the sons and daughters of Abraham, to be the people that are designed to be blessings to the whole world. And they are going to be the people who will one day bring about a human that will defeat the serpent. We'll talk more about the serpent later, but that's, that's why Israel being in sin is so destructive at this point. That's why Isaiah through God through Isaiah is so angry because these aren't just anybody. Israel is the solution to what's wrong with the world. They are the blessings for all humanity, but they find themselves caught up in the sin of the serpent as well. This comes to a climax in Isaiah chapter 5. God tells this this story through the prophet Isaiah in, in poetic fashion. He says, Israel is like a vineyard, and I planted grapes there, and they were supposed to produce good fruit good fruit. They were supposed to be the light of the world, but when God shows up, they're not producing good fruit. Uh, They're producing wild grapes. Most English translations will say wild grapes. The Hebrew word is much more cooler to say. It's like a bu'ushim. It literally should translate to like stinky fruit, stinky berry, which is really cool. That's a fun word to say. Like you try it after church. Like say if you eat something like, you know, 
well, don't do this because then someone worked hard. I was going to say, you're at, you're at dinner and the food tastes bad. Don't. In your head, you could say, Bushim, man, this is nasty. Bushim. See something that you don't like? Bushim right here. So God shows up and Israel's supposed to be bearing fruit, good fruit, good grapes, but they're not. They're, they're putting forth stinky berries, if you will. God says, he looks for justice in Israel, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so Isaiah in, in chapter 6 says that basically God is going to destroy Israel, and he tells you to picture Israel as like a tree, and the tree is going to get chopped down, and then even after the tree is chopped down, it's going to be burned. So it's like a burned tree stump. But you get this like little baby glimmer of hope. It says, but after everything's been chopped down and burned, out of one tree stump, a little shoot, a branch will come out of it. Um, and, and then it's like, oh, I think that's good news. And then here, here and there, Isaiah will talk about this, this, this branch, this stick, this root that's coming up. In Isaiah 11, it's, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's David's son, so think this is the kingly line. I'm sorry, Jesse is David's father, so think the kingly line. All the like, Bible trivia geeks were like, got him. Um, <laughs> there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So it's a little glimmer of hope, but then make no mistake about it, Isaiah's going to go back to like, judging re- real quick. And so what takes place in, in where we're at in Isaiah today is Isaiah's no longer saying, like, God's coming for Israel. The prophet of doom is, is going to go off. He's like, Egypt, God's coming to take you out. Assyria, God's going to take you out. Babylon, God's going to take you out. It's the opposite of Oprah. Where everyone gets a car, it's Egypt, you're going to die. Babylon, you're going to die. Assyria, everyone, everyone dies. There's judgment, judgment, judgment. Now here's why it's so crazy. Is Isaiah in chapter 14 is going to be giving Israel comforting words by telling them to taunt the fallen king of Babylon. The issue, though, and what makes it difficult to track with is Isaiah is in 749, give or take, and Assyria, the nation of Assyria, is the superpower, but Isaiah is like transporting 200 years later to when Babylon is the superpower, and he's describing how Babylon is falling. So he's talking about a superpower that doesn't even exist at the time, and he's doing more than just talking about it. He's talking about its destruction. So that's why when you're reading it, you're going like, who are we talking about sometimes? Because he jumps from nation to nation, and he's also jumping sometimes from time period to time period. Now, before we get started, quick question. We've made an emphasis to say that in the book of Genesis, all that we know about the serpent is that he's a serpent. You're not told that he's Satan. You're not told his motivations. You're not told anything else about this this figure. Later on in the Bible, you get more information filled in. But at this point in the story, all we know is that in the garden, a serpent tells Adam and Eve, you can be like God, eat of the the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now here's the Bible trivia part. Between Genesis and the book of Isaiah, how many times does the Bible talk about Satan? Think from Genesis. And if you're new to Christianity, you've been a Christian for a few years, this, you don't have the chronology all mapped out, that's fine. But you, 
you lifelong Christians, I'm expecting great answers here. How many times, and think about what are they, and you can name them. Where does the Bible, and how many times does the Bible talk about Satan at this point in biblical history in the book of Isaiah? Ready, set, go. Where is it? Job? A couple people said Job? Okay, what else? I mean, it's an awkward silence on purpose. It, it, it doesn't. I mean, at best, you get one or two answers. You get one or two instances. At worst, you could say Job, but e- even Job, depending upon the chronology, your view, and what's taking place in the book of Job, that, that one's complicated. But essentially, in the book of Isaiah, at this point in biblical history, there is next to zero conversation about Satan. You have a serpent figure that clearly is causing evil and causing human beings to to sin against God, but you don't know much else besides that. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Isaiah, roughly 749, is now prophesying not about Assyria, but about the nation that comes after them, and is talking about how their king is going to fall. He says, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased, the Lord has broken off the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. Okay, so Isaiah is saying... Um, the, the, the oppressor, the king of Babylon, is, is now fallen and he's defeated. Sheol beneath is stirred up. Sheol, think the place of the dead, think the grave. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations. This is kind of like epic image of... The king of Babylon is is dead, he's going to the grave, and the kings of old are coming up to greet him. All of them will answer and say to you, you two who have become as weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Beautiful Hebrew poetry to start your Sunday morning. Then, look at this. This is like crazy, epic language that's inserted. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now, now this is where it gets interesting. This is where it gets kind of crazy. Who are we talking about here? King of Babylon. This is a historical concrete figure. And in the description, it clearly is talking about a human being. But then all of a sudden, Isaiah is going to start to use kind of this epic cosmic imagery to describe the king of Babylon. And he calls him the day star in Hebrew, Halel, son of Don Ben Sha'ar. This is a specific concrete image. Your English translations will say, O day star, son of the dawn. But we actually know exactly what we're talking about here. It's Venus. And you say, how do you get to Venus? You, you kind of amateur astronomers know that the nickname for Venus is the morning star. And the reason for that is, is the planet Venus in the sky in the morning for nine months in a row before it flips its kind of cycle will, will be the first and brightest light in the morning. And for thousands of years, people thought it was a star. We now know it's a planet. 
But here's the image. Isaiah goes, there is this star. Again, it's a planet, but everyone thought it was a star. There's a star. It's the first to rise. It, for a moment, is the brightest light in the sky. But everyone knows that that is not the brightest light because the sun is still on its way. See, Isaiah does with one word and gives you an image that does more than what a thousand words can do. There is this figure, a king of Babylon, who desires to be the first to rise, who desires to be the first and brightest light in the sky, but at the end of the day, everyone knows it cannot compete with the sun. O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low goes on. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Can you see this epic kind of cosmic language continued? Now at this point, if you're reading, you're kind of going like, we're talking about the king of Babylon falling. But this language is is almost like a little too cosmic, too epic. Like, are we talking about something else? And if you've been a Christian a long time, you're going, oh, I I think they might be talking about the devil. Because there's there's the story of the devil rising to the heavens and falling and all this stuff. But again, the text says, king of Babylon. But it's using epic cosmic language that many people would attribute to the story of Satan. But then in addition to that, you have to look at it as if you were just reading this for the first time and you're at this point in biblical history. If you're in Isaiah's day and you talk about someone wanting to be like God, what story comes to mind? Adam and Eve. This is where it all begins. You too can be like God. And when you talk about Adam and Eve, you have to realize you're never just talking about Adam and Eve, right? If you're talking about the first humans, they stand as representatives of us all. So you start to ask these questions like, okay, this is about the king of Babylon, but it also sounds like, like, like maybe imagery used to, to describe Satan, but, but it's also using the story that's found in the first pages of, of the Bible with, with Adam and Eve wanting to be like God. Just as you might start thinking this is talking about Satan or some type of cosmic being, the authors let you know and they assure you, oh, we're talking about a human being here, it's the king of Babylon. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? So just when you thought we were talking about something epic, huge, or cosmic, oh no, we're just talking about a human being. Or are we? The biblical literature does this in this case, and it does it in other places as well. The Bible will take different characters, different people who share similar stories and follow a similar motif, and they'll merge their stories and they'll be intertwined so that each one of their stories and backgrounds is contributing to the other person's story. So in a sense, we are talking about the king of Babylon, and you're also, 
in a sense talking about Satan, and you're also in a sense talking about Adam, which is in a sense you're talking about us all. Uh, back in the day, now if you're under the age of 25, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about right now. If you're under the age of 25, you've probably read about this in your, your history of technology book. But there's these things called overhead projectors. Um, <laughs> See, like 75% of you are laughing, but it's an overhead projector. Is it, is it over your head? Like what? Uh, so an overhead projector used these clear pieces. They're like magical clear pieces of paper that you could write on. And, you know, you draw a picture and you put on the overhead projector and display it to the room. Now, if you had like a really cool teacher who was like overhead projector pro, they would do stuff like next level geeky stuff that was super cool with the overhead projector. So what you do is you get like three different pieces of the clear paper, and you draw a little bit on one, draw a little bit on the other one, and draw a little bit on the other one. And then you'd put one up, and you'd see like sort of like an image, but you didn't quite know what it was. But then the teacher would put the other one on top, and then the other one on top. And then you have this like pie graph or pie chart, and it's all working together, and it's color coordinated. It's like, this teacher's awesome. It's like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? Isaiah chapter 14 is talking about the historical concrete figure, the king of Babylon, but it's using the story's motif and and kind of characteristics of others to describe the king of Babylon because they all share these similar dynamics. And just like an overhead projector, there's this layering going on to build this composite picture. Now, in Isaiah, it's a little difficult to see, but let me show you another example where it becomes clear. Because the Bible does this a lot. It does it with, with prophecy um, about Jesus as well. In the book of Isaiah, for instance, uh, there's going to be talk about someone named Emmanuel. And if you've been a Christian a long time or you know the Christ- Christmas songs, Christmas is coming up, you go, oh, Emmanuel, that's Jesus. But when you read the book of Isaiah, there's some, you'll read about Emmanuel and you go, wait, that sure sounds like they're talking about like a king that's going to be born in the lifetime of, of this person. And guess what? In a sense, they are. But in another sense, it's also pointing forward to someone else. This will make it clear. Isaiah, uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 is probably the most clear example of this in Scripture. Ezekiel's a lot like Isaiah, and he's doing the same thing with the same characters. Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Say to the ruler of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. Who are we talking about? Ruler of Tyre. We know historically at this time that is Ethbaal III. This is a historical concrete figure. Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. So there's this king, Ethbaal III, who is arrogant and and pride and makes himself to be like God. Ezekiel is given a word against this king. Therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, Ethbal III, the the most ruthless of the nations. They shall draw their sword against you, the beauty of your wisdom, and defile your splendor. Will you then say, King of Tyre, I am God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you. So you get what's going on. King of Tyre thinks he's the man, 
thinks he's like God, thinks he's as good as God, and God says, when the people come to kill you, are you still going to brag about being God? Very similar to the story of the king of Babylon, right? Check this out. This is crazy. It's crazy. I'm telling you. This is nuts. Ezekiel goes on. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Still talking about the king of Tyre, right? You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Who are we, ta- who, who are we talking about? The, the king of Tyre was in Eden? You were in Eden, the garden of God. And it's, remember the story. You can't go back to Eden, right? They get kicked out and there's that whole angel with the, the super sword. So who, I mean, who was in the garden of God? Who was in Eden? You only got a few options. Adam, Eve, some goats, some donkeys. Some, God, God knows that there was no sin, so there was no chihuahuas in the created order yet. So, and then the serpent. You have serpent, Adam, Eve. But Ezekiel's talking to the king of Tyre and saying, you were in Eden. He goes on, you were an anointed guardian cherub. That's an angel. King of Tyre, you were an anointed angel in the garden of God, in Eden. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So there's this person who is pure, blameless, perfection, the signet of perfection. They desired to be like God. They were in the Garden of Eden. They are an angel, and they stayed this way until unrighteousness was found in them. So the question is, who are we talking about? Who was made blameless, sought to be like God, and then lowered? Are we talking about the king of Tyre? Talking about the king of Babylon? Are we talking about the serpent? Are we talking about Adam and Eve? Are we talking about humanity? And the answer is yes. Yes. We're talking about all of them. Most clearly, to be precise, we are talking about the historical concrete figures of the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. But make no mistake about it, what the authors do is they layer like that overhead projector. And what they're doing is they're letting all of these same stories, which have the same plot, the same narrative flow, the same motif, they're letting them inform the other. Now, you have to understand the way the biblical literature works. Because it does this with, with Jesus, it does it with other prophecies where there'll be like two, two fulfillments of a prophecy. And so when you understand that, you go back to Isaiah 14 where there's this taunt against the king of Babylon and it says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star. 
And you need to know that it, our culture likes precision, ni- likes nice little neat categories. So there's some of you who, who just, it, it bothers you. No, it's like it has to be one or the other. Um, we like precision. And historically, the, the, the church has just said, um, starting about the third or fourth century, oh, these passages are about Satan. But then when you actually read the text, it kind of bothers you because it says, no, it actually says it's not Satan. It says the king of Babylon. So we like precision, but we have to allow the Bible to do its thing. And what it's doing is it's presenting you this overhead projector layering. Now you bring that understanding back to this, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Oh man, this is so good. If you were asked, again, Give me one word to describe the serpent. You have one word to perfectly describe him. What word would you use? Isaiah says, Venus, done. That's all you need to know. He is the being who desires to be the first to rise, the being who desires to be the first bright light that human beings see. But true reality says the sun is coming And this day star, this morning star, cannot compete. That one word does so much to describe not just Satan, if we're honest, all of us. We desire to be preeminent. We desire to be on the throne. We desire to be like God. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Now, you got to know... The, the Bible works like this in a number of ways, and, and, and unless you're bringing that to the table, your biblical interpretation is always going to be difficult. So, for example, um, Babylon is, uh, prophecies are being made that Babylon is going to fall, and indeed, historically, Babylon fell. Uh, Persian Empire came in, there, Persian Empire becomes the top dog, they're the superpower, and Babylon is destroyed. And Babylon is that kind of world superpower is, is done with from there on out. But then you read the Bible, and does the Bible stop talking about Babylon? No, if you're a Christian, you know, no, even after physical empire Babylon is destroyed, the Bible is always talking about Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, guess what the prophet says, one day will fall, Babylon. And you're like, how many times does Babylon have to fall? Babylon, in the Bible, is first a historical, concrete empire that is destroyed. But Babylon also in Scripture is any system, ideology, or institution that exalts itself above God. Babylon is any culture, ideology, system, institution that exalts itself above God. And the Bible says again and again and again in more ways than than one, whenever you see that Babylon usually lurking behind the scenes is this sinister, mysterious person we call the day star or Revelation calls the serpent of old. Babylon is anything that exalts itself above God and usually behind those systems and those workings and those ideologies, there's the one that lurks and works behind the curtain, the serpent of old. Now, uh, if you are 
a modern person, which we all are, brought up in American culture, which most of us are in the room, not everyone. Um, but if you've been born and raised, especially like in California your whole entire life, born and raised in California, you come to the table with a culture that's filled with massive presuppositions. And even though you are a Christian and, and you say, like, you know, I believe in the spiritual realm, you don't live your life like that, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves. We've been trained to believe the only thing that exists is the material world. And then oftentimes, uh, when Satan or the devil or demons are talked about, we get a bad image because, like, we've been told, like, you kind of get this image of, like, this little red creature with, like, horns and a pitchfork, and he's, like, just going around trying to poke people and stuff. So you go, no, I'm smart. I don't, I don't, look, I'm enlightened. I'm smart. Of course I don't believe in Satan. Of course I don't believe in the devil. And you've been trained to think the material world is all that exists. And again, even if you're a Christian, you've got to understand you're growing up in a culture that says again and again and again and again and again, the material world is all that exists. So if you're a skeptical person and you're here today, you're wrestling with Christianity or you're new to Christianity, and like the idea of spiritual forces is weird, um, just know that you are in a minority position. The vast majority of human beings and the vast majority, if not all except one or two, cultures that have ever existed, all have not only believed in the supernatural world, it was an assumption that was integral to their worldview. And the vast majority of human beings alive today believe in a spiritual reality. Kind of post-enlightenment modern Western culture is in the minority camp in believing the material world is all that exists. So let me give you an image. Picture a one-room cell, a one-room concrete room. It's got walls all around. It's pure concrete, and you've lived your entire life in it. You've lived your entire life in this, but there's a window to your one-room cell. And so every day you look out and you see, you know, birds chirping. There you see a sunrise and the sunset. Storms come, storms go. You live your existence within the one-room concrete cell, but through the window, you know there is more to reality than just that one room, right? What has taken place in the last 200 years due to a number of kind of philosophical and cultural movements is people have come in and boarded up that window, and they put planks over it, wood, and now it looks like it's all blocked out. And now you're in this one-room cell, and you've been told the only thing that exists is this one-room cell. There's no window. There's nothing on the outside. Every so often, though, you hear the birds chirp. And every so often, a cool breeze sneaks through the cracks, and you, you feel the temperature difference. We've been told the material world is all that exists. There is nothing more to reality. And I'm telling you, if you live your life as a Christian, only seen with physical eyes and not understanding there's a spiritual reality and there are spiritual forces at work, you will be ill-equipped to deal with the times we live in. You have to have physical eyes and your eyes have to be open to spiritual realities. Anthony the Great, I think they, they gave him the name the Great after he died. It's like everything, you only get credit couple hundred years after that. He's a dude who lived in the desert uh, meditating on, on the word of God. He's been dead for like 1,700 years. But he said this, that give or take 1,700 years ago, 
A time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad, you are not like us. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? There is more at work in this world than just the mere material reality. Babylon is alive and well, and the sinister being behind Babylon is alive. And there are forces at work that are anti-God, and they are anti-creation. They're anti-God, and they are also anti-creation. And what I mean by that is this. God, the, the, the Genesis starts off with God creating this amazing world, and it's designed for human flourishing. The world is designed for human beings to flourish. And, and there's things God establishes. There's an order to creation. There's a natural order to creation, and God establishes it and maps this out. And it's all in the story of Genesis. There is something like objective morality, meaning there's a right and a wrong. You can disobey God or obey God. In a philosophical sense, we call that like, again, objective morality. What, what our culture is saying is that morality is not objective, it's subjective. In other words, there is actually no true right or wrong. It just is dependent upon what you kind of feel in your heart. Which sure sounds a lot like wanting to be like God, the one who defines good and evil, right? So you have objective morality on the attack. You have all the other things that are put into creation in order for human beings to flourish, like marriage, like manhood, like womanhood, like procreation. The forces are not only anti-God, they are anti-creation. And do you see that in our culture? Do you have eyes to see that? I mean, really, it's not just an attack on God, it's attack on the good created order. Attacking manhood, womanhood, procreation, attacking marriage. For those of you who are probably older than the age of 25 or 30, you were probably just getting glimpses of this, but you were spared, but for our younger, younger people in, in the audience, the, the magazines that are targeting you, the universities that you want to attend, there will be professors that will, will tell you marriage as an institution is this evil backwards institution, and human beings will be better off without marriage. And marriage just confines you to a life with one person and you were designed to be sexually free. Don't put the shackles on you. The forces hate everything that God establishes. And God established those things for human flourishing. So you kick God out. You are anti-God and you are anti-His creation. And trust me, if you take a stand on any one of those issues, a time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad, you are not like us. This is more than just a physical battle. There's a spiritual reality to this. And we live in evil times, and you've got you to be able to navigate this, and you can only navigate it if you're looking through it with the biblical lens. There's been some uh, crazy things last couple weeks, um, in, in like with Hollywood, the, the entertainment industry, it's like every six hours, some huge celebrity, some entertainer, uh, like 10 people come forward all about how this person was, was sexually abusive, 
or, or, or did, did some evil, evil act. Um, I was talking with some fr- friends, and it was literally, I was on Twitter, I'm like, dude, it's like every four hours, there's another celebrity name trending. And, and if you look at kind of the reactions from people, it, it's bizarre. It's bizarre to be like, oh my gosh, so-and-so. I never would have believed it. I can't believe this comedian would, would harass these, these women. It's like, oh my gosh. All of our heroes, the people we love, the people who we, who we look to for entertainment, Hollywood is corrupt. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. Are you telling me a culture that trained its young people to think it's an embarrassment to be a virgin when you're married, a culture that makes attacks on marriage, an entertainment industry that glorifies the objectification of women, that glorifies violence and sin, a music industry that glorifies and tells young men the heroes they should look up to are pimps selling women for money. You're telling me that we should all be shocked that that culture and that industry is corrupt at its core? Now here's the even more crazy and more sinister thing is right now you're seeing culture do this great grandstand of virtue signaling. If you don't know what that, that phrase, learn that phrase, virtue signaling, it's where you kind of, um, like you say something that everyone in a room of course is gonna agree with you so you, you, you appear to be morally virtuous. Like if I say, hey, at South Valley Community Church, you need to know we don't, we don't like child abuse here. But this is what the world does. They virtue signal and everyone applauds each other back and forth. Oh, you're so courageous. You, you say child abuse is wrong. It's virtue signaling. Now, the reason why I bring it up is this. Hollywood is corrupt. Of course it is. We shouldn't be shocked. But here is the shocking and sinister nature of it. This is how the serpent works. We feel good about ourselves and stand up morally virtuous and say, we do, we do not tolerate sexual abuse against women. We are so righteous. Come on. Don't pat yourself on the back. You fed that beast for decades, both Christians and non-Christians alike. We purchased it. We watched it. We looked at it again and again and again. Entertainment became our drug. We watched stuff we know we shouldn't be watching. We talked about and watched and binge-watched programs that promote just the absolute destruction of, of marriage and family and goodness and values, and we consumed it for decades and loved it, and now we're going to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, this is so evil. We fed the beast. Our hands built the walls of Babylon, and now we act shocked when Babylon takes a stand against the church. We all have contributed to this, me, you, all of us. This is how the evil one works. It's not just like to get you to, to do something evil in the moment. You know, like people think, you know, you were angry at work and you, and, and you yelled at someone. You're like, oh, the devil got the best of me. Oh, come on, you're a jerk and everyone knows it. The, the, <laughs> Satan told the other little demon henchman, put that guy on autopilot. Don't use any of our resources on him. He does it to himself, his own flesh is evil. Babylon is a system and there are things at play and what happens is it creeps up on you. You don't even realize how you're being sucked into it. And, and the, Satan is so good at this. 
you are thinking you are morally righteous as you contribute to build the walls of Babylon. He convinces you're good. You're a part of the solution. Oh, so good. We stand against this. No, 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 no. We don't stand against it. And so our culture right now is in like this crazy spiral where um, everybody thinks this group is what's wrong, everybody thinks this group is wrong, and everybody thinks this group is wrong, and we're all patting ourselves on the back like we're ca- we have the real solution. And it's a far more sinister plot. It's to get a whole culture to be in line with the serpent and think they're on the side of God. If you don't have spiritual eyes to see this stuff at work, you're going to get eaten alive by Babylon. And man, for our young people here, I, I mean, I, I, I worry. You know, you're supposed to be the confident pastor. The sovereign spirit is going to be at work. But man, I think about my kids. and Man, have spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear. There are more things at work than just material human evil. And you've got to be careful because it'll sneak up on you. Sin crouches like a predator waiting to attack. And you've gotten cozy with it so long, by the time it attacks, you don't have the space to run away. Got to have a physical and spiritual understanding of the world. And just, just note that some people are always... Depending upon your background and your personality bent, you're always going to emphasize one or the other too much. Like there are people who live their lives, Christians even, who they say they believe the spiritual realm, but in reality they live as if there is no spiritual world. Some of you fall into that category, work on that in your heart. And then there's some people who it's like everything is spiritual. You probably know who you are. You know, see that noise? See, you heard that? Did you hear that in the front row? You probably thought that was like a demon. Like there's demons in the walls. It's just like the demons are, so we all have bents that, now, if it does it again, I'll be creeped out. Um, so, so you have to find that right balance, okay? And you have to understand this. When we're talking about the king of Babylon, we're talking about Isaiah 14, we're talking about Ezekiel 28, you have to know this. The story of Adam is the story of Israel, and the story of Israel is the story of Babylon, and the story of Babylon is the story of Satan. And if you're brave enough to see it, the story of Satan is the story of us all. Because it starts with human beings saying, we want to be like God. We want to dethrone him. Now, so it's not all doom and gloom as we wrap up and transition to baptisms, and so it's not an awkward transition. There's good news. There really is good news. It's good news. Um, There's a different day star, believe it or not, talked about in scripture. Um, There's a different morning star. It's only mentioned twice in scripture, but you have this sort of evil, sinister day star who wants to be the light bearer the first to rise and outshine the sun. But then in the book of 2 Peter and in the book of Revelation, someone else is identified as the true bright morning star. This person is the real son of God, and this person is Jesus. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus' closing words are this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Get this imagery? Jesus is the Root. What's that from? Root. Stump. The burned down tree stump. There's still hope. He's a descendant of who? David. He's from the kingly line. This is 
the shoot, the rightful king, and he is the bright morning star, but he comes in the morning not to seek his own light, but he announces the sun has come, a new day is beginning. He doesn't come to glorify himself, he comes to glorify the Father. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Man, guess what? The world's evil. No joke. It's pretty bad. Guess what? You're part of the problem. The story of Satan, the story of Babylon, the story of Adam, it's the story of us all. Isaiah says someone else is going to come to defeat the dark, sinister forces. But here is the thing. Israel has always fought its battles with the sword. But there is an enemy that cannot be defeated by sword or blade. You can't nuke it. You can't bomb it. Different weapons have to be forged. A different type of king will have to come. And for the rest of the book of Isaiah, he's going to be pointing to a future king, a future God with us, a future Emmanuel, who will come not only to defeat the dark, sinister forces at work, but he will come to judge humanity. And that's good news because his judgment is good. It means the end of evil and forgiveness for all those who would bow the knee to the true king. That's why becoming a follower of Jesus is more than just accepting Jesus in your heart. It's accepting that you sought to dethrone God. You wanted to be the king of your own heart. And coming, becoming a Christian says, I'm leaving that. I'm putting the rightful king, the son of David, on the throne. I'm bowing the knee and I'm going to live my life to serve him. And in that, you, you will find everything else that you've been searching for. Things will start to fall in place in incredible ways. Now, baptism serves as that external symbol. It's a symbol. Uh, it's more, but I, I, even, I, I don't even like saying symbol because it's, it's such a powerful symbol that you can't just go, oh, it's just a symbol. No, no, no. This is a public declaration of a human being saying, I turn my back to Babylon. I turn my back to Satan and I submit myself. I bow the knee to King Jesus. And uh, as you're going to see, we, we got... Uh, several people getting baptized, and one of the most encouraging things for me is to see young people and, 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 and young adults in the current cultural climate we live in to say, man, God, save me from this mess, save me from myself, and I, I want to live for you, I want to serve you in the midst of, of the chaos that surrounds us. So we're going to transition into a time of celebration because anytime someone gets baptized, it represents something, someone believing in Jesus, and that is always a miracle. The greatest miracle you can ever witness is a heart turning from rebellion to submission to the king. So I'm going to call Greg up, and we're going to continue with these baptisms. He's got his shoes off.